0: Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer, everybody. And if you're a first time listener, this is a music and arts podcast, an independent music and arts podcast, which means I don't have any fancy network backing me up. I do this all myself. And um, so your support and listening and telling your friends means a lot to me. So please do so. And speaking of music and arts, this uh, usually, lately, as of late, I've been doing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of interviews with musicians, which uh, is my sort of favored choice of people to talk to. And today, I get to cover The Gambit, because this is, uh, today's guest is Ann Magnuson. Um, she is a actor, performance artist, nightclub performer, musician, and that song that played us in was uh, Be a Seder from her album... Dream Girl, and you can get that on uh, Bandcamp and probably all the other forms that of music. Um, so it, go to my show notes. All things Ann Magnuson will be in the show notes, websites, and links to. She also uh, recently did, or she's currently doing a web series called What the Fuck 2020. Uh, it's really great. We talk about that a little bit. She was also a. Um, prominent figure in the 80s art scene. A few months ago, I interviewed John Lurie, uh, all part of that scene, Basquiat. And um, we talk about uh, that world, New York, 80s art scene extensively, a lot of other things. It's a really interesting episode. I'm very grateful that Anne took out the time to do this and um, also, uh, check out her... She has, she has some other music she has under her name, Anne Magnuson. Then there's Bong Water and um, Vulcan Death Grip. Um, so she has a massive body of work to explore. And as many links as possible will be in the show notes. Otherwise, just go, Google Ann Magnuson. If you don't know much about her, there's a lot to know. A lot of pictures of her with Bowie. We didn't talk about David Bowie, but... There's a lot of pictures of her and David Bowie. I think they did a movie together. And uh, David Bowie and I probably have seen the same movie at some point in our lives. So I have something in common there. Um, if uh, if you enjoy the conversations with Matt Dwyer, there is a whole community of things on my Patreon, um, which is also in my show notes. Uh, I, Patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer, I think is my Patreon <laughs> boy i really know how to market myself uh but it's in the sh- it's in the show notes or you can go to the anyway there's uh, i'm going to start doing a blog i'm going to start doing a, a song of the week and give a little history of the song or or album of the week and also give a, a little history and not a critique cuz i don't believe in music critiques but just sort of my history to the music and a little history of the music uh i have a wide taste of music so check out my patreon um, also, just tell your friends about the show. That would mean a lot to me, uh, you know, just say, hey, this guy talks to cool people. And there's always my Instagram page, Conversations with Dwyer. Again, go to the themattdwyer.com or go to—I have a link tree that is in my show notes. It'll take you to all that stuff. All those things. Um all right, sorry. I'm a little anxious as I do this intro. Uh, I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago that my wife and I and two kids have kind of been on the run from the smoke in our town because we were right next to one of the big fires. So I've, I haven't have really spent any time in my own home in about two months. <laughs> it's it's getting exhausting and goofy in the head. Anyway, enough about me. The show is never about me. It's about my guests. I just had a brief second where I talked about myself. I really try to make the podcast focused on the guest and the interview focused on the guest, not uh, interjecting with my own garbage, because um, you didn't come here to talk to me. You came here to listen to the fascinating, artistic, brilliant people I talked to. And if, speaking of which, if you do like Ann Magnuson, check out my library of past guests. Uh, like I said, I had John Lurie. I've had a lot of uh, iconic musicians like Wayne Kramer, Boots Riley. Uh, recently, I had Kyle Field from Little Wings. And uh, this is my 199th episode, so my 200th episode is coming up. Hopefully, I have a very special guest for my 200th episode. And Kyle Field of Little Wings and I are going to do a special episode Um Th- but that I'm not going to tell you about, because it's all going to be special for the 200th anniversary sh- series thingy-mahoo week. All right, let's um, now get on to my conversation with the great and brilliant and Magnusson. Did you know what you were looking for when you went to New York, or did you know you just needed to get away? By that
1: time, oh yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, in, college, in high school... Well, I grew up being involved in a lot of the arts because my mother got us involved in a lot of that. Community theater and piano lessons and ballet lessons and puppetry and um, some art and all kinds of stuff. And... um and then by in high school, I started hanging out in the smoking area. Although I didn't smoke, <laughs> but I liked the people who did, and they were funny, and they played guitars out there, and we goofed off, and we were everybody was reading National Lampoon, or Rolling Stone, or Circus, or Rock Scene, and then loved David Bowie and. Just, loved all the stuff from the counterculture, and I'd grown up watching, we all grew up watching Vietnam on television, and horrific violence, and all the civil rights fight, and I remember reading about the Berrigan Brothers in Time Magazine, my dad got Time Magazine, and I was really intrigued by those guys, and burning their draft cards, and all this all this resistance to the Vietnam War and I think it probably helped that my parents weren't pro-Vietnam War because I had some neighbors whose parents were and I remember having arguments with with their kids about why we needed to get out of Vietnam but at the same time you also saw all this rebellion and I just found I found the Chicago 7 really appealing, maybe because my dad had a very authoritative streak, even though it didn't um, extend into his politics, but just the idea of rebelling against being told what to do or being dominated, that was always appealing. So watching the Chicago 7 create this theatrical mayhem in the courts was Really, like funny to me. It was on par with watching the Smothers Brothers, and, it was, and they were making their own kind of uh, comical mayhem. And um, so, oh, oh, yeah. I remember there was this show about the hippies in Haight Ashbury in San Francisco. And my dad made my brother and I sit down and watch it. I want want you to watch this. You know, it could be very... Like, ooh, you didn't say no, you know? (laughs) It's like, okay. But it had the opposite effect. It made us want to be hippies.
0: Well, he was trying to scare you away from being hippies? Yes. That's hilarious.
1: And then later... um, cut to, you know, the days of the internet, and I thought, oh, I wonder if that's on YouTube. And it was. <laughs> I watched it. and It was like, it was no wonder. But on the other hand, as an older, um, hopefully more mature person, I was watching it and knowing more about kind of how that scene degenerated so badly. It was like, well, I can see why you wouldn't want your kid to run off to San Francisco and end up a degenerate because there was a lot of degeneration going on. But on the other hand, I want to be in there in that park blowing bubbles and dancing around and being against the Vietnam War. And that stuff was very intense. And the people my age, we carried that into our college. Well, in high school, that was. I I was affectionately called my friends from then the Glamrock Hillbilly Hippies <laughs> <laughs> and we were kind of an amalgam of all that stuff and and then when I went to college you, you know find you the artists the arty people who were taking art classes and the dance classes, and the theater classes, and the film classes, um, and uh, you kind of continue the tradition there, and then I went to London for my junior year abroad in 1976-77, and watched that whole punk rock scene explode, but at the same time, I was I was deeply into high culture and was going to see the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theater, I had a moped and I just drove around London constantly, looking, you know, going to galleries, going to movies, seeing, discovering filmmakers like Werner Herzog and Fassbender and just things I'd never heard of, and getting to see paintings in real life rather than just a, a, a book. So it was very exciting. And then watching the punks like start to infiltrate. The streets, and of course, they were influenced by Richard Hell and um, the early the, the CBGBs New York scene, which I read about and devoured as I was a college student. So by the time I got to New York, I went back to to Ohio. I went to Denison University and directed a play. I was thought I was interested in being a theater director, but once I did that a few times, I realized I didn't really want to deal with difficult people. You know, to try to corral. But I directed um, this—it was a Polish expressionist play called *The Madman and the Nun*. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that was sort of just—that was so collegiate, nineteen seventy-seven. But it, and I put Ornette Coleman music on it as the incidental music, and it turned out pretty good. The philosophy teacher at the time, he was a he's an expert in Wittgenstein, and he had this big red beard. He was a young guy, and he kept you know sleeping with his students, which I think he got in a lot of trouble for later. <laughs> Not me, thank God. But he he what I went back there decades later he still talked about that pro- that production it was like oh great i love it but i got to new york i couldn't take stand, i couldn't stand being at that school anymore so i um uh, signed up for this work study program for my last semester in in senior year and so i got to new york for that in january 78 and I wanted to work with somebody like Richard Foreman or um, the Wooster Group. I didn't even know. I don't think they even existed. They're called the Performing Garage, you know, the downtown avant-garde theater scene.
0: Was Spalding Gray a part of that?
1: Yes, yes. uh And Great Lakes College Association um, was the sponsor of this program. But they didn't understand that. They just saw Off, off Off-Broadway. So they put me in a theater uptown on 52nd Street and 11th Avenue, which in 1978 was a pretty damn dicey area to be walking through, which I had to do every day and night. Um, And that was called the Ensemble Studio Theater, and I was the interning for the, uh, the, uh, the artistic director. And I learned a lot, but I went downtown almost every night to so these or Max's and combined downtown with this, this uptown stuff and realized that I didn't really want to be uptown. I wanted to spend more time downtown. <laughs> Did it, yeah. and, uh, and women had more agency down there. I mean, a lot of people, you could really just... Ma- the, um, people made up, you know, alternate identities. You could create... Whatever reality you wanted to live in down there, as long as you did it on a dollar, five dollars a day. And Ellen Stewart was writing La Mama. I remember, Jesus of the jerks and CBs, and she was doing whatever the hell she wanted on her terms, and. Patty Smith was uh, a big influence on me in um, college, and I would see her around, and all this stuff seemed very possible, you know, that you could do your own thing. It was so cheap down there, extremely dangerous, and uh, really problematic on a lot of levels, but you had freedom, and that's... That was really exciting. And, yeah, I I knew that New York was the place to go to after reading about um, Richard Hell and the band Television and Tom Verlaine and, and Pace Smith and the St. Mark's Poetry Project and just all this stuff that was happening there. And you, even at the time, New York was really the place. I remember thinking in the 70s, okay, well, if I'm going to be an actor or if I'm going to be in the theater, I'd done a lot of community theater. I'd played Helen Keller in The the Miracle Worker when I was 16, among other productions, and got these rave reviews. And I thought, well, people seem to like me when I do this, so maybe I should focus on this. And uh, I remember thinking, because of the exposure to television, is like, well, what world... I can't go to L.A. because I don't look like one of the Charlie's Angels. But New York, there's all this other stuff that's, you know, nonconformist. It's not Charlie's Angels or Chips, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be New York. I was just, New York was such a scary, daunting place to go to that I kind of, now I can see now I went to London First, as sort of a, a way to acclimate myself to the idea of a big, a big, huge metropolis, because Charleston, West Virginia, is not a very big city.
0: <laughs> Did you find, because you were entering into a scene, was there, was it difficult to sort of make your way into that at first? Because I, I think of the scenes that I've been a part of, and that there's always kind of a hierarchy and. Sometimes the higher yeah. ups kind of poo poo the new new kid. <laughs> and,
1: oh yeah, that was going on for sure. Oh yeah, that's human nature. But, but the thing is, I wasn't trying to be best friends with Patty Smith. I was just wanted to. I was wanted to be there, and I met people right away. They weren't high up on the, you know the 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 hipster food chain in that regard and that they'd been recognized by major media outlets or anything. But they were cool people who were doing wild stuff and I immediately fell in with with um you start to acquire friends and people who make you laugh and make you feel comfortable just sort of just being yourself, you know to some extent to some extent but one it was very easy to fall in with a scene there it wasn't my it wasn't a recognized scene but there were so many pockets of groups of people who were doing their thing you know at the same time and they were very similar and you just started to my a friend of mine described it as like a pinball machine. You start pinging around, and boom, 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 boom. You meet this. You're over on this side. You go this side. You go down here. You poof. poof, poof, poof. You know, you're meeting all these different people, and all this different stuff is going on. There was a really strong dance. Uh, you know, uh, I don't. Avant garde is kind of a weird term. Modern dance was going on. Um, going to see, you met people at CBGB's, I met my a good friend, who's still a good friend, Nakas, who was little from Lithuania, his parents from Lithuania, he was from Chicago, and he and I became instant friends at CBGB's, and he was a theater student at NYU, and he turned me on to this great, performer named Jeff Weiss who was somebody who had just won an Obie but had refused to accept it (laughs) and it turns out he was like a neighbor of mine one of the first places I lived at in in the East Village and I became friends with him Willem Dafoe lived in the building Mm -hmm. I lived in so I got to know him, and he invited me and my boyfriend at the time to see his first per- performance as an actor at the uh, Performing Garage. And then subsequently, we went to see a lot of his stuff at, at Wooster Group. So that's just a small inkling. There were so many people that I knew—people from London, who I'd gone to school with in London, who ended up in New York. People from from Denison. It's. And they knew people, and they knew people, and, you know, they told two friends, and they told two friends. (laughs) The whole thing, I think I'm getting probably another spam call. Not that yours was spam, but uh, (laughs) just uh, all you listeners out there, if you're hearing a weird beep. So you met people, and... uh, and also I would just find things on my own you read and the Village Voice the Soho Weekly News uh, anything you can get your hands on but there was a, a, these punk rock stores which were kind of the center of the universe you go to Manic Panic that Snooky and Tish Balomo, who, who now have this empire of hair dye called Manic Panic they had this store on St. Mark's Place St. Mark's Place was uh, you'd go to particular hangouts and uh, it all kind of snowballed you just start meeting people and then end up being in their shows they would be in the things you did and uh, a group of us ended up at Club 57 that became our hangout for a couple years and then we moved on to the Pyramid Club but there are also I mean there's dozens of places whose names I can't uh, recall right now, there was a place I remember under a. It was a basement of this uh, building in on St. Mark's Place, uh, between First and A. And I think for a while it was just called the, the, the toilet or something. <laughs> I can't remember the name. And it was just a, a basement room, and somebody had a DJ. There were a lot of the kids who liked rockabilly went there. I remember going there and dancing and it was just packed full of people and the floor was full, just covered in beer and garbage And but everybody was wearing their cute rockabilly outfits and dancing and and that only kind of existed a couple of times. You just knew about it because you run into somebody on the street who said, oh yeah, this is, where are you going? I'm going to here. I'm going, oh, okay. I love that that thing on the street that the internet has completely destroyed. Just the randomness. You would walk. You didn't have a plan. Uh, There wasn't a agenda. You just would hang out. You'd hang out on on somebody's stoop. And then somebody would walk by and you'd see them and, hey, or I know you or blah, blah, blah. I remember running into Jean-Michel Basquiat one morning. Just, I think I was going to get a, a newspaper at Gem Spa, the famous uh, newspaper stand that was immortalized on the back of the New York Dolls' first album. That was so exciting when I got there. I'm like, oh, my God, this is a place that was on that... The back of the New York doll album, which I stared at all, so, for hours. And, oh, my God, there's Jerry Nolan. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, oh, my God, there's Johnny Thunders. Oh, shit. You know, I'd see Richard Hell all the time on the streets of East Village in the late 70s, and I'd break out in a sweat because I had such a crush on him. He was such, like, a punk pinup for me. (laughs) That movie, Smithereens, that um, Susan Seidemann made captures that that sense, that kind of aimlessness. But it was kind of, it was sort of a poetic aimlessness that all this spontaneous stuff would come out of. So you didn't have, I don't think people had plans like they have now. It- and when you're young, do you really have a plan? I mean, maybe Lady Gaga. To have, you have you general plan. You cool. <laughs> um, you want to have sex. You want to have fun. You want to see the Ramones. You know, I was able to do all that stuff.
0: Does it seem like art scenes or just scenes in general get sort of? I mean, I think this is even pre-internet, like cable, like MTV. It's like as soon as something becomes even bubbling now people already jump on it and it's like almost oh yeah yeah
1: absolutely I remember I remember all of us the feeling of MTV coming in and co-opting all this all the graphics and all the coolness even there's a movie called Blank City about the um the new wave or no wave whatever wave um underground um movie scene that um, Amos Poe and um, James Nairs, John Lurie, Jim Jarmusch, uh, and then Vivian Dick, there were a lot of women doing it, too, um, were involved in. Sarah Driver, I I was in her movie Sleepwalk, which also captures this this sense, this weird, magical aimlessness of New York before it got... um, gentrified way, 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 way before. But yeah, when all that stuff started getting jumped on in M T V, that was absolute commodification of all these things that that up to then felt more precious. There's a really interesting you know that book Low Life by Luke Sant or and with my West Virginia accent, I was always calling it, Sante, Luke Sante. You know that book, <laughs> *Low Life*, about those people down there in New York. Now Laurie said that's a good book, and um, his introduction is really good description of of um, the vibe. And one one uh, phrase really jumped out at me, and I, I hope I'm quoting it correctly. He called um he called like what was going like the scene down there uh, cocoon of marginality living in a co- living in a cocoon of marginality, and yeah, we could talk for hours about that, the pros and cons of living in the cocoon of marginality, and of course the ultimate um I mean, where that can ultimately go is heroin addiction. And I know a lot of people really wore their heroin addiction as kind of a badge of honor. Like, that's where their their nihilism took them. And also, it probably made them feel a lot better. Um, It always made me sick. And, of course, I had to try everything once. And I did so much of that crazy shit in high school and some in college, before I got to New York, and I'm so glad that happened because in a lot of ways I got it out of my system and uh, kind of dealt with all the repercussions of that stuff while I still was under the um, my parents' roof to some to some extent. But by the time I got to New York, I was really laser focused on I want to do avant-garde theater, I want to be part of the scene, I want to be creative in this this out of the box way. I want to do everything. And New York, downtown New York, you can. If you don't know how to really play an instrument, you can be in a band. Although I could play the piano, but my problem was I was I was taught a classical and I didn't really understand the simplicity of just three chords <laughs> <laughs> so I thought oh that's too complicated but I'm playing Mazorski in our East Village you know all these you know Bach and in our East Village hovel. the first one I had and um and then later I figured out, wait a minute, I can, wait, this is not rocket science. You just put this, all this complexity aside and keep it, and do all this stuff simply. And then you can do anything you want. I I, did, I could be any character I wanted to be by just making it up, going to a thrift store, or finding you found so much shit on the street. I got some great furniture. Just I walked down the street and there's somebody put out this nifty little antique. It was a, this chair with a lamp on it. You could sit on it, but it had a desk connected to it. It was really little and compact and very nineteenth century or no, it was more like early twentieth century. But I thought, This is cool. I just it was pretty light. I thought, I'll just take this back up to my apartment. And there's so much stuff you could do by, by finding things on the in the street. In Club fifty seven we made so many of our sets out of refrigerator boxes. There were there was so many there was so much cardboard left on the streets. <laughs> that you would drag into the club, paint it, do your thing, and then throw it back out on the street the next day. <laughs> and I love the disposability of all that. And, you know, I think that, and yes, every scene gets kind of co opted, then somebody monetizes it, and then it becomes sort of an establishment, and then there has to be another group that comes in and does. You know, rebels against that. So I, I, I was going to Seattle in the early '90s. No, oh, I think I went there. Anyway, I think what was going on with Seattle in the '80s was, you know, another version of what we were doing in New York. And there's stuff going on now, I'm sure, somewhere. You know, I see, I can see it on Instagram with some of the people. I met this girl in Joshua Tree who was hitchhiking around, and she was 20. Three. She was just about to turn 24. And I thought, this chick is interesting. What is her story? And she was wearing, like, this crazy repurposed fur coat and all this homemade, this crazy homemade rigmarole. It was very kind of hippie, but... It reminded me of some West Virginia vibe or something. Well, of course, she was from Portland, and she was hitchhiking around. I thought, girl, you are going to end up... You're coming to our house. You're going to take a shower because you're filthy, and um, you're going to sleep here, and then we're going to try to send you on your way. I'm going to do for you what nobody did for me when I was wandering around without a clue and getting into some crazy-ass shit that if somebody had been paying closer attention, maybe I would, would have been spared some of that. But she is an awesome artist, and her Instagram feed is so interesting she's way off the grid doing, making art out of roadkill that she finds and things in the nature. She's this wild nature child. But man, she's a real artist.
0: Did you see anything like yourself in her? Like uh, your young... Yes,
1: yes. In fact, she inspired me to kind of get back to something that I felt I had lost going through the... Meat grinder of show business and legitimate show business.
0: That's an interesting. What? What did you lose, or what do you feel like you got away from? Um.
1: Well, I have this very practical side to me that knew I had to have health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> And and that I didn't want to live in a roach-infested, you know, apartment where people were trying to break in on a regular basis, where I really, the fact I was never raped or killed is a fucking miracle. It really is. Particularly after I listened to the podcast, The Ballad of Billy Balls, <laughs> that podcast which I have to thank you for turning me on to that. That just that took me back in a way that was disturbing because there was a lot of disturbing stuff going on there and a lot of this aimlessness was not romantic. And I saw people ruin their lives through drugs, through fantasy thinking where they weren't being practical. And I have to thank my dad for his set of jeans that got, or maybe it's from being born as a Capricorn because we're total control freaks and want order. But I have Scorpio rising, which I assume means there's this wild side to me, so I'm kind of a mixed bag. But I was really practical and I knew that I had to, you know, pay the rent and, um, I wanted something a little nicer for myself, you know. I wasn't going to live in a slum forever, but I wanted that health insurance, and that's what getting into acting really helped secure that. And I have a whole backstory with my mother who divorced my dad and married somebody who then... That's not a very pleasant story. Maybe if I get around to that memoir, it'll all be in there. But she became very dysfunctional and I was bailing her out a lot and I had a lot of repetition of that the first boyfriend I had in New York who was we're still friends now were and he was sort of the Virgil to my Dante he was showing me around the the club scene and he's I I met a, a lot of people through him and um, he was in a way my protector, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> he's the only like he's the only person who ever hit me, and every, every guy who ever hit me. Um, but he did that because oh, that's a long story. Oh, but actually, this all fits. This will probably help me go from tangent. 6,700 back around to question number three. (laughs) But, um, that he, so, one of those afternoons where I'm walking to go to Gem Spa to get a, a newspaper, um, Probably to read about the Jonestown Massacre in Guyana. Something was around that time period. I remember watching that on the, our crazy little, teeny little black and white used television that we had in, stashed in the corner. But I, I was walking around and, and walked back down on St. Mark's Place. I was on. We were on 10th Street between... And I run into Jean-Michel Basquiat, who I knew, in him around, and we from all these clubs, We knew he, people just knew each other, and even if he hadn't really talked to them, you knew them. And there was only really a couple of hundred people in the East Village at the time who were quote-unquote cool, and you knew who they were, usually because they were wearing all black, or they were had a crazy hair style or color, or they're... Their shoes, that was a great indicator of <laughs> it was cool. <laughs> what kind of shoes they had on, you knew, it was very clear. And you start to get to know people. And I started talking to him, and he was wearing, I remember, he was wearing a set of pajamas. He would wear pajamas, like cool vintage pajamas, as an outfit. And um, we started talking, and one thing I love to do, thank God I got most of the drugs out of my system before I got into. New York. I loved coffee. Once I discovered coffee, I just loved getting jacked up on Cafe Bustello, which was this super strong coffee they sold in New York on the Lower East Side. (laughs) And I never had coffee like that before. So I was always inviting like, let's go drink coffee and talk. (laughs) Talk about ideas and things and stuff and be young and alive and electric. So I invited him over. I said, Let's make, I'll make some coffee. Okay. So he came over and um, Peter, my boyfriend, had gone out for the day. <laughs> I and mean, God knows what. I found out what he was doing <laughs> some of the time, which was crazy. But um, he, um, I was alone with Jean-Michel and I was making the or Jean, as we used to call him, and I'm making the coffee, and um, he pulls out a magic marker and he says, "Can I draw on your refrigerator?" I said, "Sure." And he drew a whole Samo thing. He was Samo, and you know, it was a copyright. Sign and Samo S A M O, which stood for same old, same old, same old thing. That was something him and this artist Al Diaz did together. So that graffiti was all over the Lower East Side in the late '70s. Samo, it was either Al or it was John, or it could have been an imitator. There was no sense of like ownership of any of this stuff at the time. It was just there, and then it was completely disposable and he did this whole elaborate thing on the refrigerator and i wish i could remember what it, is. it said something there were some words and there was a hangman he liked to do the hangman character back then remember that game hangman where you yeah. would do the so he did that and then he put the copyright thing in samo i was like okay that's cool and we're some serving coffee and we're talking and then I don't know, he was there for maybe 45 minutes at the most. And I said, okay, well, I've got to start doing some stuff now, and it was nice to have you here, and see you later. And I kind of showed him the door. And I found out later that he was really pissed off at me because he thought I was inviting him over to have
0: sex. (laughs) (laughs) That's presumptuous.
1: And I was really such a, in many ways, such a Pollyanna. I mean, I, I could tell you some stories prior to that that would be like, what? That's no Pollyanna. But I really was. And it's kind of, I was just, I would really genuinely just wanted to have coffee. I wanted to get jacked up on caffeine and talk about art and culture and gossip or whatever. And just... I loved all these new friends that I was making. Well, I didn't know about that till later, but Peter comes home and he sees that John's been there because of this graffiti, and he went berserk. And he got so angry at me, and he was just screaming and screaming. And I'm like, why? I don't know. Why you... I had no idea. What? Why is he so mad? He made me get turpentine and wash all of that off the refrigerator it was screaming at me the whole time while I'm cleaning this thing off sobbing like (laughs) so there was this Basquiat that today would probably sell for 60 million dollars that was washing off but I am so Grateful I did that because I eventually left Peter because I was pay, I was I was the one working a job and paying all the bills, which a lot of rock chicks did that for their boyfriends back then, <laughs> and that's why I was like, I why am I the one who has to pay all the bills? Uh, that was one reason I left. But he would have the, the reason I'm glad I washed. That art off was I would have left the I didn't he, actually Peter said I could have the apartment if I wanted but it was such a dump I didn't I wanted my own dump <laughs> a dump of one's own I wanted to start fresh and new oh, little did I know it'd be so hard to find an apartment but I did find one eventually um But I would have left that. That refrigerator was probably something I would have left with Peter. He would have sold that off so early on in the game. And then we would have been destined to watch that fucking thing, that refrigerator door, get passed (laughs) around from auction to auction to auction until it finally ended up, you know, with some creepy oligarch who's like and ways deep in blood money or Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs>
0: <laughs> kind of an oligarch. Who,
1: who I just found out I know I mentioned her because I just read online that she just sold her ten million dollar Basquiat through some gallery in East Hampton or something or East and I'm like, Oh my God, it oh, that's something that's really bizarre. And should you live long enough, grasshopper, you too <laughs> will have these experiences where you see, if you've been in these environments and you've, you've been in these scenes, that, and I think you probably already have. You know, you've seen people become very successful and then either die because of it or or, or not. But to see this stuff that was done in a spirit of... Uh, just purely art for art's sake. And that's kind of pie in the sky, but it's true. There was a period of time where that's true, that nobody thought that any of this was going to go any further than the moment. It was such a be here now, be in the moment time for me, for me at that age, and everybody has their own kind of take on it depending on what they're bringing to the table but I've heard this from many many other people there was like this little window of opportunity in the late 70s before MTV before before Jean-Michel Basquiat went to Italy and came back in an Armani suit with $100 bills falling out of his pockets point there But then when you start seeing this stuff going for so much money and becoming really the Picasso of of the moment, sort of. I mean, it's such a, owning a Basquiat is such a status symbol, and it can only be owned by people who, you know, have great fortunes. And as Balzac said, behind every great fortune is a great crime. uh, there's a, a friend of mine caters here in l a and he was catering this crazy party. This is something Adam McKay would love <laughs> I didn't <laughs> tell him this one, but this is so up. This is so much like out of a movie he would do there There was Rudy Giuliani at this party for super rich arch conservatives in Beverly Hills. And they were showing films, selling, showing a a presentation on home security systems. And I'm not talking about, you know, a little alarm you put on your, your doors and windows. These were like tanks you could buy. Tanks. Tanks and, like, basically shit you used to you know for your private army and my friend I, I was telling him you have to write a book called I Caterer about your experiences catering these crazy LA parties with these people who have so much money and there's Rudy Giuliani he's, he's serving Rudy Giuliani a beef skewer with a Keith Herring behind him and I will tell you, from knowing Keith, Keith would be horrified that his art was in the hands of people like that who were selling armaments, arms dealers, basically. This is completely the opposite of the spirit with which I know Keith Herring was making his art. He liked being an art star, but he, he did very good things with with his um, influence and his money to help the gay community and all kinds of people. But, um, but you know, where this stuff ends up is a completely different place
0: than where it started. <laughs> and it's ironic because these elite people are the ones who, like Giuliani, they they want to defund the arts. They don't support the arts. But, but when it becomes a status symbol, then it's a whole different ballgame.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, because it's not—it's not art anymore. It's a commodity. The art—I mean, the art world. It's as Fran Lebowitz said. It's not the art world anymore. The art world used to be this thing that only a, a very small group of people were part of. It's now the art market, and this is this is the stock market without the SEC, with the no regulations whatsoever. This is all. Um, uh, uh, money laundering. Money laundering with 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 the. Uh, oops, are you still there? Yes. Uh, it's money laundering with the added bonus of, of status. Wasn't there a famous story in Vanity Fair or something with that Mike Ovitz was showing off his Picasso on his yacht and. I don't know bragging about like this is what real power is you know
0: that's insane that's absolutely insane
1: and then there was a well and then there's a famous quote from um, uh, William Randolph Hearst and somebody had asked him why do you even want to have newspapers you know you can have these movies you've got all this you know he had I guess this was at the height of his wealth. And he said, because you can destroy a man with a newspaper. Wow. So uh, that's my other hobbies. I'm kind of fascinated with power politics <laughs> and history. And I'm off on, you know, tangent number seven thousand nine hundred ninety-nine nine <laughs> nine. So I don't know where we... But I thought the Jean-Michel story... Was interesting because it just, I'm relieved that I don't have to see something that I could have owned. You know, I just, said, I, I love that it doesn't exist anymore. I love that I'm left with the story because the story is everything. And I shouldn't even be telling the story. I should be monetizing it in the memoir, which I've got to fucking write that <laughs> memoir. But I've already told that story a few times, so I feel like, all right, that's it's okay to tell that story.
0: I do want to ask about... But,
1: but, but I did have... Oh, and I'm sorry I'm not letting you talk at all because, you see, I'm a blabbermouth.
0: No, that's fine.
1: But... But... Um... But I also had I had a streak of, of, of practicality in me where I don't wanna be destitute. I don't wanna end up in a gutter because you could in that world. You very easily could. And I saw it happen many times over and it's like I don't know. And I also had I had was the good luck of coming from West Virginia and being able to go back to visit and get grounded, you know, into what was important, what I felt was real. And this is going to sound kind of right wingy, but I think I did have some traditional values that I think is not right or left wing at all. It's just some basic values about staying. Mm. Trying to just have enough but not more than you need and I certainly saw that with my grandparents, my grandmothers, and my grandmother magnuson and they they grew up with very little money very they had incredible crazy hardships and When I go back to West Virginia, it's like they didn't care who was on Saturday Night Live or what was, they didn't really care about any of that stuff, it, whether it was in the counterculture or the mainstream culture, um, people just live in their lives, you know, it's a very live and let live place, even though it's, it's always singled out as being this, you know, horror state of Trump supporters, and they are there, but there are still a lot of cool people there, and... I I haven't been back in, like, three years, and it's the longest I haven't been back. And it's really hard. That's why I like having a place, got a place in Joshua Tree, because I needed a rural setting to go to and remember. Whew, okay, okay. Nice. L.A. is not the reality, you know. This is the illusion. This is the fantasy land. And New York, that downtown New York world... It was kind of, a, it, it It was its own little fantasy land, you know, cocoon of marginality. But there were great things about it, but there were also major pitfalls. So at some point, you just you have to grow up and you have to get a job. I mean, you have to. Now, I always did have a job. I was doing temp work. But why I was constantly paying the bills for people who didn't want to get a job, that was something I could sort out. I have sorted out later. (laughs) Why am I enabling people all the time? Um, But getting into movies and TV shows and being an actor where you could actually get paid for it and have health insurance, that was just a very grown-up thing to do even though the business is insane and will drive you crazy and Many times doesn't feel grown up at all. Thanks to some very, very progressive people, including Boris Karloff, who started the Screen Actors Guild and created a, a, a benefit system where you could have health insurance, which is now being taken away systematically.
0: That the, what SAG is doing—it just it. There's already a, a plethora of non-union work that is killing the union and I feel by them making it more difficult to get for actors middle middle class actors to get benefits they're only hurting the union oh the- it's it, so you
1: can't you can't I have struggled to be a middle class actor struggled it's so hard and years ago I was writing a column for paper magazine in the 2000s called LA Woman and I never got around to writing the one I wanted to write called, titled, Memo to A-List, You Suck.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's just the same thing. It's like, do you guys, and this 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 circles back to Mike Ovitz because that whole 80s CAA super agent world, you know, you started to see it, see them chip away at the concept of something that might have been democratic in the acting profession that it all became about packaging and these superstars and mass huge crazy paychecks for the one and the the one percent got richer everybody else you know well where are we going to get that money from well we don't have to pay is this supporting cast that much and now we can pay them and as it, the years went on it just went lower and lower and lower and it's like will you take it or leave it you know and then you have to struggle to try to make that and then at the same time the eligibility rates for, for even being able to qualify for health insurance go up 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 and nobody I don't think that merger I don't know if that merger was so good or not but um, I have to tell you something. I went, I'm not the biggest Rob Schneider fan, or I wasn't, until I heard him speak at a a SAG meeting before the merger. And he got up there and he said, don't let this happen. They want to destroy the union. I'm one of the lucky bastards who's in the 1%. It's not going to affect me. It is going to affect you guys. And he gave a very impassioned, short speech. Cause uh, you know, they're it's like those you can people line up and they can go talk at the microphone for a minute or whatever. And I thought, he's wow, this is amazing. This guy who doesn't have to be here is here saying what needs to be said. And I didn't think that merger was. I, you know, I mean, why didn't this? the the actors' strike. Why, that's... Everybody was just so terrified of the producers. All the A-list people are producers. I don't know. I don't think... They don't care who, what's going on with the people who are, you know, in the end credits.
0: No, it's it's amazing. I worked in production a little bit here and there, especially uh, when I first moved to L.A., and I know people have this view that L.A. is hip, uh, liberal and this and it's like but the amount of worker abuse that i had witnessed and was victim of and like underpaying people and and i I had worked for a daily fee and there were days where i worked so many hours that my fee was under minimum wage each hour like it was like it was so abusive and people yelling at you and throwing things at you and it's like where is that that's that's the side yeah. of LA people don't know or think exists. Oh,
1: it's not. This this is not. This is not liberal. This is pure vulture vulture capitalism, and it really I I could see that turn. It's always been a really really rough business. My God, I love that Karina Longworth podcast, but, man, it depresses me after a while. It's like, oh, oh my God, I can't hear any more misogyny and exploitation of human beings, and particularly women, because I, if, you know, if I could give her an earful and maybe have my own season on that show.
0: Yeah, the, the business almost brought me to a nervous breakdown at some point. Like, I almost, like, God. my anxiety and was so bad that I was like, I either have to check myself into a hospital or take myself out of, like, kill myself is where... I have a
1: friend, I know somebody who did, I mean, yeah, I've seen it happen, and I've seen fame, like, destroy people. There are not too many people, I mean, because people generally get it when they're quite young, and then they haven't got a grip on their family of origin issues, and then they get into self-medicating, and then, you know, it's... Some people don't get to get out on the other side of it.
0: If I would have gotten the things I wanted, I would I would be probably a joke, like a joke people make, like, whatever happened to that guy? And do you, you see the time he went crazy in the mall? <laughs> like, Like, I would be yes. that person. But you
1: know what? On the other hand... Because I am really an optimist. I think we should turn this around. And you see, Carl Jung would open up a bottle of champagne when you were right at your break, breakdown, breakthrough point. Because this is all the hero's journey. So all the shit that gets thrown at you is a gift because it helps you then turn around and you let go of your provisional self which is the part the self that's been conditioned and programmed by family and by um, cultural institutions and religion and whatever to form ideas that you think are set in stone about what you should have what you should be who you are and then something comes along and sometimes it's just a little tap on the shoulder and you're not paying attention and then it's a shove on the back and you're not paying attention and then it's a, you know, a hammer to the head and you're still not paying attention and then, you know, the great tsunami comes and you're like, okay, I'm going to pay attention now. And like, wow, this stuff isn't real. I mean, this is, as a wise old meditation teacher told me about reality it's real but it's not really real we're always <laughs> we're always quoting that it's real but it's not really real yeah and and it's it's kind of it's all like you know bill hicks said it's just a ride it's just a ride but you got to you know expose yourself on really a daily basis to to the things that remind you of that and that put you into that grounded state. And if you have too much show business, you know, you're going to go off the rails because I've had a lot of wonderful experiences and I'm really indebted to it in a lot of ways. But everything you've just said is true as well. And my my husband said, whatever you do, don't talk about acting.
0: (laughs) I wanted to make sure we talk about uh, what the fuck twenty twenty, which is the the video project you've been doing, and uh, the,
1: oh yes, I forgot about that. I also I'm just yeah curious, yeah
0: because you said it's a homage to. Uh, um, now my mind just went. Um, I haven't. It's an homage to. Uh, God damn it, the friend Godard. I, I don't know. why God, I'm a fan of Godards, and I don't
1: oh why. no. There's one episode. Oh. One episode we made into an homage to Godard because there were so many jump cuts that I thought, well, why, well what are we going to do with all these jump cuts? And I thought, oh, let's just make make it a thing, you know. Godard did. We can do the same thing, and then oh, let's make it an homage to Godard, and then it ended up being the most fun and our favorite episode. What the Fuck 2020, WTF 2020, is a web series that I have on my YouTube channel, and it was um, my reaction to the pandemic, and I do it in collaboration with a friend of mine named Adam Dugas, who is a performer and a filmmaker and um, a really fun, smart, creative guy who does many, many different things. And he's... um, I would shoot stuff using these weird dolls that my grandmother made in the 1950s for her grandchildren back in West Virginia. And she was um, she was a Swedish immigrant who came over when she was six months old. And through Ellis Island, or through that building before there was an Ellis Island, there was this other building you went through before that, before they built the immigration station at Ellis Island. And she um, lost her parents in a pandemic. I don't. It wasn't the um, Spanish flu. It was some other horrible thing that people got and died of, probably tuberculosis. And was brought up by her um, her aunt. And they never threw anything away. And she was. She's really my inspiration of how to live. She never learned how to drive. She did not have anything of luxury, but her house was full of stuff, like every Life magazine ever published was in her attic, and that's where I got really into World War II and history and magazines, and, and she just had so, so much cool stuff, and now I've got a bunch of that cool stuff in my, in my house, and among them were these funny little dolls that she made out of... T- uh, pipe cleaners and old stockings and any kind of yarn or fabric remnants that she had laying around. And she was did beautiful crochet and made crocheted faces and embroidered faces. So um, I've inherited these things, some of them. My cousins have a whole bunch of other ones. And I decided, well, I, I was making these crazy little videos on Facebook just to out of using these dolls and reverting back to my puppetry roots (laughs) since I took a puppetry class in second, uh, yeah, puppetry class in second grade and then did puppet shows in my, my basement for a long time after that. So I thought, well, I'll just shoot these dolls as puppets and say whatever's on my mind, make these episodes about the pandemic as it unfolds, and it's become like a diary of what's what's on my mind or what's been happening and during the course of this pandemic. We don't know what's going to happen next, as we don't know what's going to happen next. But um, mm-hmm. the Guardian episode was a testing, and... John, my husband, and I went to get a test in at Dodger Stadium, which was such an experience, wild experience. And I wanted to take the dolls to record that experience, but using them as the uh, the surrogates. And we were both negative. But then I had another friend who did the same thing, and they were positive. So um, in our last episode, Dust Bunny is positive, and we have we are still. In the midst of creating episode 10, the 14 day quarantine dream, and we decided to just go full out and go total psychedelic. There's a lot of psychedelia in some of those different episodes because I've had crazy dreams all my life, which is probably why I got drawn into Jungian psychology. And I write them down almost every morning, not always you know one day maybe i should do a podcast of those dreams they ended up being a lot of bongwater songs and <laughs> stories that a band i had back in the day and um and I actually just recorded one for um do you know that that dj consortium dub lab i do not out of here in L. i they're per- very cool and they've got um and um i'm been doing some collaborations with them and that reminds me of the old days they're really fun they do music they have a a web channel and uh, they have a group in uh, a dub lab germany and dub lab japan so um that track is going to be available in a couple of months i think and i used one of my pandemic dreams for that too um but we incorporate a lot of my, my dreams into the What the Fuck 2020 as well, and that's when it gets to be kind of like an, an old bong water song, but with new new information, and those dreams are very, very useful, a good resource material for me, for for monologues, for songs, which I can't perform because we can't get into a theater or a, a stage, but... This is a way for me to be creative during this time and not go completely crazy. Because without creativity, what, you know, we would, that's an outlet, you know. That's an outlet. And that's what it's there for. So hopefully people have been, we've had some good response. And we'll get around to making episode 10 and then just see what happens, you know. I have ideas for what the episodes are, but then reality intrudes and you got to change it because Lord knows what kind of episode we're going to have on November 3rd.
0: Ugh, I can't even... I, I'm, I'm trying to decide what I'm going to do that evening because I can't sit in front of the TV like I did last time and have a meltdown. So I, I have I have no yeah. answer yet, but I'm not sure what it is.
1: Well, take heart... If it's a repeat of 1984, that was, like, some of the most creative years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) You just dig in, you just build the trenches, and then you, you know,
0: you throw the glitter bombs. Thank you again so very much. Yeah, thank you
1: for being interested.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Remember to rate and review it. And if you like, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer, or Conversations with Dwyer. Also, listen to my friend's podcast, Hunk by Mike Bridenstine, and Kill Gallant's Pub with Joe gallon Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you again.